Communications disruption can mean only one thing. This is Jam Transmissions, a Star Wars podcast. Hello, everybody. It is your host. Mr. Rigby and Weba back for episode 138 of the Jam Transmissions podcast. And for starters, I want to say a huge, huge thank you to um, a good friend, Peter Viox, founder of uh, this very show that you're listening to, for stopping by and talking with us on May the 4th. We had a great time um, just uh, kicking up the dust and seeing what's been going on on Pete's end. And um, it was a wonderful time. Thank you for everybody who listened to the episode and provided a little bit of feedback. It was um, greatly appreciated. Um, but we're going we're going to um, do something a little bit different today. I'm flying solo, and with what Pete said on the fourth about how I do these shows solo kind of gave me a little boost of confidence in how I do these things. And normally, I just get on the mic and I just kind of riff about whatever is in my head, be it, you know, book reviews or whatever. I don't typically take a lot of notes because I want my ideas to come out <clears throat> uh, very organic. You know, I mean, I know kind of what I want to say, but I think for me, this is uh, the format that works the best. So uh, today we're going to talk about Star Wars Visions Volume 2 that came out also on May the 4th. Um, I Took my time watching these episodes. I didn't really, I didn't want to rush it. Um, I think with volume one, I did. And I think it was a bit of a disservice because you kind of cram everything together and you lose sight of what these stories are about individually, I think. So um, I absolutely loved volume one. I think moving away from uh, kind of like a, a single country. Uh, for inspiration was was the right move, and and I don't say that as any kind of slight on what the anime studios did for stu uh, for uh, season one, but uh, it was nice to get some new fresh perspectives. And if you guys listen to the show, you know how I feel about perspectives in Star Wars, and <clears throat> what Visions has allowed Star Wars to do is not just give us personal perspectives in storytelling, but cultural perspectives in storytelling. And I have to say, Volume 2 was nothing short of amazing for me. Um, I tried to stay away from a lot of people's thoughts with it because, you know, I don't want to have any kind of slant or bias to how I feel about these things. But I have seen some people talk about, you know, some of the shorts that they liked or didn't like, um, the overall feel. I know a lot of people liked Vision's volume one more than volume two. Um, these are two separate beasts for me. Uh, it, it's hard to compare what these stories are because of the cultural uh, 
kind of singularities that exist for each one of these stories, you know, where a lot of volume one had a lot of the, you know, they focused a lot on Jedi uh, as, you know, maybe they should, you know, given the, you know, samurai influence of what the Jedi were, uh, you know, for George Lucas back in the day. But season two or volume two, whatever you want to call it, has so much more richness to it uh, than I think season, than volume one did. I'm going to go back and forth between season and volume, guys, so just bear with me. Um, so before we get into all of the visions talk, I, I want to give a little, I, I need to get this out. Um, so we went through like a rather busy time with star Wars from the beginning of the year with bad batch and Mandalorian celebration book releases, all the high Republic stuff and just, you know, book releases on their own, all the comics and everything. And it's weird to say that right now is kind of like a resting phase for star Wars only because there isn't weekly television. Um, but there is a lot of news and speculation about what's going to be coming and when things are going to be coming. And something that I've kind of wrestled with as far as the show is concerned is how I want to deal with some of the more news elements of how things come out. And I've made kind of the conscious choice to not follow up on a lot of the news things and interviews um, be it from Kathleen Kennedy or Tony Gilroy or Diego Luna or whoever's on these, you know, press junkets or whatever. Like I feel like right now Andor season two started its press junket um, right after season one ended and they're just going to keep talking about it. And it's going to be the same things kind of said over and over and over again until the show comes out next year or whenever it's supposed to be. And while I have value f for all of the creators and the process I kind of don't care about a lot of the interviews um, because they're spoken in a lot of vagaries. There's a lot of wishful thinking. Um, there's a lot of wait and see kind of talk that doesn't get me intrigued the same way that it used to, at least leading up to, you know, the movies of the sequel tril trilogy. Uh, maybe as new movies, you know, as we start to get closer to release dates, my view on that will kind of change. But I think what I found over the last year, year and a half or so, what's most important to me about Star Wars is the stories of Star Wars and how they affect the people that absorb these stories. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've chosen to have different guests come on to talk about how these shows or movies or books or whatever impact them and how Star Wars influences our daily lives. Um, that was something that I wanted to do a little bit more last year and didn't get the opportunity to, you know, I apologies to some of the guests that I won't name, um, that I've asked to come on and haven't had the ability to have them come on yet. Just life kind of gets in the way. Um, cause I wanted to have star Wars be, or this show be more about the audience that star Wars affects and how does it do that through its stories? Um, interviews with Dave Filoni or whoever do more to, even if they're glowingly positive, um, tend to stoke the fires of fandom more than just, you know, whether we like a story or not. Um, there's lots of needless, I don't want to say needless, maybe that's not the right word, but there's a lot of wheel spinning when it comes to trying to interpret what creators say that for me, 
it doesn't equate the lessons in the storytelling. You know, we can talk about how Dave Filoni is like the new guru and he learned under George Lucas and all of that kind of stuff. Well, that's all true. And these creators do have their value because without them, we wouldn't have these stories. But the interviews that they put out, like there was one in Empire Magazine this week. I didn't read it. The pictures look cool. Um, but there was a lot of kind of clickbaity things that come from it. And guys, I'm just being honest. I don't care. I don't care what Dave Filoni says about Thrawn. You know, I see, I saw the headlines. I didn't read any articles. I don't care what Tony Gilroy says about the last three episodes of Andor. Um, that's my favorite thing that's come out lately is Andor. But I don't care what he has to say about it. I want to know. And he, and the thing with Tony Gilroy, somebody like him and some of these other creators too, I think a lot of what they're saying with these interviews is, you know, they're, they're bites. They have to put something out because they're, you know, doing interviews or doing these panels or whatever. They deserve all the accolades that they're getting. But I think some of these creators know that what it is that they're actually trying to say about these shows is going to be on the screen or on the page or in print um, or in animation uh, with the case of Vision Season 2, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So I would much rather take the story as it's being presented to us and talk about those kinds of things than the, did you hear what so-and-so said about the thing that they're going to be making? That's all good and well, guys. If There's lots of other shows that'll do that and break that kind of stuff down. Um, and I don't want to say that there isn't value in those kinds of things. But for me, that's not why I engage with Star Wars. Um, you know, growing up and learning the behind the scenes things, those documentaries, a lot of those were after the fact, after the movie had come out, seeing the creature designs of Return of the Jedi, seeing, you know, all of these documentaries or these books that have come out you know, the, the cycle for punditry didn't exist the same way that it does now because there's so many more voices that have the ability to talk about it. Um, and sometimes it can be tiring when there's too much talk of what a specific creator says. And for me, that's, that's not what I'm here for. Star Wars for me, isn't the creators and their opinions. It's how they translate their life experiences into the stories that affect us. That's one of the reasons why I love the book so much. And, you know, seeing people's gameplay of Jedi Survivor and what that story has to offer. I don't have a PS5 or a new console, so I'm not playing the game. I'm watching other people play it. I'm loving it. I'm loving what I see. Um, I've been spoiled on the whole game, and that was by choice because I wanted to know kind of what happened. So that kind of stuff doesn't bother me because I don't know when the hell I'm going to be able to play it. But just ultimately, guys, I want you to know going forward that uh, when, if and when news things happen that I feel are worthy to talk about, I will. But for the most part, um, I'm probably going to stay away from that kind of stuff because Star Wars for me is about the people, um, us as fans and how we interact with this thing that for a lot of us has either changed or saved our lives um, in some different ways. You've heard me talk about some things. I'm not going to go rehash and stuff that you've heard me say a thousand times on this show, but you know how I feel about what these stories do, you know, seeing these things on the screen. Um, so with all of that said, 
um, it's going to sound weird to segue into this, but one of my favorite things from Celebration this year was seeing the Visions 2 panel, which I'm glad that they streamed and hearing the creators talk about the influences and how that that was going to manifest in each of their shorts. All of that said, let's talk about the shorts and how these things, um, what they were about. You know, I, I didn't write down a lot of things like character names and stuff like that. So you'll have to bear with me as I kind of just talk more thematically about how these stories affected me um, as they were presented. Now, again, you know, it's been a week or so since um, volume two dropped on May the 4th. And I was very excited about it. I, again, I loved volume one. I loved the Ronin book. Um, that uh, Emma Candon put out and the exploration of like an outside lore in the star Wars skin is extremely intriguing to me because like you've heard me say, it's about those perspectives. It's about how the things in our personal worlds or in our cultural worlds um, shape these stories. It's just, it's, that's how storytelling works. You know, we're influenced by the things that are, in, in our real world. And when you can find an old parable or some kind of uh, ancient story or fable that is handed down within the culture and then reframe that in a Star Wars skin, I am here for all of that. Um, and some of these stories had exactly that. So as I do with notes, uh, with analog, you're going to hear me shuffling some paper because that's what I do for notes. Um, I have a notebook. I don't do all this stuff digitally all the time. Um, so bear with my paper ASMR, um, or maybe you're into that kind of thing. I don't know. So <clears throat> yeah, so volume two came out May 4th on uh, the Star Wars day, if you will. Um, I did have a good Star Wars day outside of talking with Pete. Um, you know, just kind of, you know, rejoicing in Star Wars. And we know for a lot of us, the Star Wars Day is an everyday thing. We don't need a specific day for it. Um, but it is nice to see people kind of celebrating it in their, in their own ways, even if it can be a little ham-fisted or cheesy or whatever, however you want to see it. Um, you know, here in Michigan, I saw some billboards with Grogo on it that said, may the 4th be with you. Um, I don't know who the hell paid for that. But uh, it was a nice little reminder that, you know, it's out in the real world and, you know, people experience these things, maybe not on the same level that a lot of us do, but uh, it's entertainment for a lot of people. Then there were also like the uh, car dealerships that had people's names, um, you know, thrown as a pun in the May the 4th. I think I'm not going to say names as I'm not here to advertise for these people, but some of those are a little, little, little cornball, if you ask me. But it is what it is. It's all in good fun. Uh, just like Visions Volume 2. So the first episode was called Sith by a studio called El Guri uh, from Spain. And it was directed by Rodrigo Blas. Now, I didn't write down all the credits for all these things besides directors, guys. So I don't have uh, writer writing credits for these. And you'll have to forgive me. But much like the Ronin episode of Volume 1, this one had me hooked instantly. Um, the vibrancy of color, the absence of color in some scenes, the abstract nature of the way the animation was framed. I am here for all of that. I loved every second of the look 
the texturing of this animation. Um, it was gorgeous. Um, now that's just the, the, the chum on the line to bring me into this thing because the story of this thing by the end of it had me just kind of flabbergasted. Um, this to me was a great way to kick off volume two. And like a lot of these stories, they kind of leave you wanting more. You want to know the continuations of these stories. And I have heard some people say that that's a detriment to the series because you know, you're probably not going to get more. Um, to me, I think it's one of the best things about this thing because it opens it up to your own interpretations and speculation on how these stories can be after we're, after they end um, and how they can go. It, it reminds me very much of, you know, being a kid and growing up with whatever trilogy you grew up with um, and then going home and playing with your toys because there wasn't a lot of stuff that you could lean on to expand these stories. Um, you you found your own ways to imagine what happens next. And this with the the woman, uh, again, I didn't write down character names, guys, but her artistic endeavors, you, you it's clear that she had gone through some kind of trauma. She's missing an arm, um, but she's still finding a way to express herself and be um, who she feels she needs to be. And this short was like this exploration of art and life versus the lack of those things. Um, the creativity was its own purpose. And when the true Darksider character, the I don't know what, again, I, I didn't write down names. When this guy shows up with those two droids and you see the color change, it goes from vibrancy to more, you know, stark blacks and grays and things like that. Um, it's trying to take away that life. It's trying to take away those, that, that vibrancy, that creativity, the inspirations of the world around us. And uh, I'm going to be talking full spoilers guys. So if you haven't seen volume two, um, go back and watch it. But when um, they fight in that hallway and she's got that yellow kind of katana looking blade Got my heart racing, guys. I'm not going to lie. It was it was gorgeous. Um, seeing the sparks fly um, off their blades. And when she ignites the red blade out of the back end of her hilt uh, against him was like almost a, a gasp moment. I know it was in you know some of the trailers early on. But to see it in this context of knowing that it's a part of her, it's a part of her past um, that she she then used to um fight this guy and his declaration at the end uh as he kind of uh dusts away a la thanos um and her refutation if you will you know her saying like you know like i'm not a sith i was never like you um and going on to create uh, to continue to create and to block that part of her past uh, so that she can move past it and continue to move on and be this vibrant light um, versus the rot and despair of fear and hopelessness. Um, it was beautiful. I loved every second of it. And being from Spain, I loved that her droid's name was, was E2 um, because phonetically, 
in Spanish. You know, it's a droid designation. E2 means and you. Um, she was never alone. She always had some kind of guiding force with her. Uh, you can say it was literally the droid, but I think the light was always there. I think that's more what that's emblematic of. And I think it was fantastic. Um, this was one of the few that I watched with, uh, with Cheryl and Isaac and, uh, they were both like, whoa, jaw dropping, um, at the end of this thing. It was, uh, it was well executed. Again, the animation was, was just gorgeous. You're going to hear me say that a lot. Um, as we talk about all of these shorts, but um, one of my favorites, I had nine favorites uh, for <laughs> for volume two. So uh, that was Sith. I would love to have more of this story, um, but maybe more of the backstory, not the future story uh, for this uh, for this woman. It was gorgeous. Now, moving on to the second episode, a second short, Screechers Reach from Ireland, a studio called uh, Cartoon Saloon. Directed by Paul Young. This episode on the initial watch hit me really hard. Um, This episode, or this short, I should say, brought me really close to tearing up a little bit with the end of it. Um, I love the kind of Amblin-esque kids on an adventure take that this presents. I love the innocence of these kids, even though they are in a very hard setting, be it like they're in the mines or something, there's some kind of forced labor, it seems, is going on, where our main character is um, tempted by the lure of a better life. And it's this uh, be careful what you wish for kind of kind of fable analogy um, that, you know, they, they seem to think that it's for the better to move away from this, to move away from the loved ones, from that kind of solidarity uh, into a life of an unknown. And as they enter the cave of Screechers Reach itself, um, the the enveloping darkness, the little like alien creature, seeing the fear um, and all of that, it was... Um, it was uh, immersive in a way that I didn't expect because as they come upon the, the witch air quoting uh, in the cave, the animation style, the streakiness of it, it had this ethereal banshee kind of nature to it that um, was transformative a little bit. You know, it was, it bristled against the rest of the animation. It was, it was wild and untamed and it was, fearful. Um, it just evoked so many things. And even though we don't see the lightsaber strike of our main character, we know the, the gravity of that choice. And it was surprising, um, to see them use a a red blade that way, but there's an innocence to it. It's a test. And, you know, she says to the rest of the crew, like, or the rest of the kids, like, you guys go, I will take care of this. There's, there's a bravery, a a bravery in that, but there's this naive take on that bravery. um, That is wish fulfillment more than anything else. And when they get out of the reach and the ship comes down, 
the design of which was gorgeous. It almost had this like Jedi temple looking thing. And I'm like, oh my God, there's this salvation. There is a better life for these kids or for this one particular kid. Um, but then you come to find out that it's was another dark sider um, in this beautiful skin. It's this deception almost. Um, it's it's the shiny trinket that grabs your attention. Um, that guides this this character, this girl. Um, it was hard to see the goodbye knowing that the other kids knew that they had to let go because that, that was the whole point of this. This whole thing was for one of them to attain a better life. But what is that new life? You know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a parable on, on the dangers of choices and what we, th- what we want may not be the best for us. Um, and again, if there's a continuation of this story, future choices will need to be made um, by this character. And it was heartbreaking. The story is about longing. It's about so many things. Um, but what it doesn't do in its progression is forget. You know, we see the look of our main character as the door closes on the ship that you can see that they won't forget the rest. Which to me is a sign of hope um, because they were all good kids. They were just out on this adventure. Um, hoping for something better. But this one really, really touched me. I was uh, surprised by how much it did, and I, I thought it was fascinating. So probably my favorite of the nine. Um, this is my... Uh, it, it was it was that good um, to me. So I whatever, opinions are opinions, but you, know, I, you guys, you can tell me all afterwards how you feel about these things, but this one was probably my favorite of the whole bunch um, now that I've seen them all. So... Uh, let's move on to the third short in the stars from Chile uh, studio punk robot directed by Gabriel Osorio. And this one stop motion. Star Wars is a trip. Um, there's a couple of shorts in this volume that have this stop motion style, even if they're not hundred percent stop motion um, that, you know, it took me back to the old Phil Tippett stuff. It took me back to, you know, a Tauntaun and a Rancor and some of these other things that Star Wars utilized uh, to stoke an imagination. And this short was fascinating to look at. The The depth of the environment was, was breathtaking um, to have that much um, perspective. And I mean, that is visual perspective, uh, you know, what the Imperial base looked like, what the stars look like, what the waters look like, things like that, the contamination of the environment as a whole, all of that, um, was so expertly done. Now the two characters in this, you have two sisters, I believe, uh, one younger, one much older, uh, kind of grieving the loss of their mother and how the story of, you know, we, of like, the two deaths um, there's you know, the first time when we actually die, our bodies die. And then the second time when our memories are lost, um, there's these, these two deaths and how these girls are like refuse to let the, the histories of their past um, be forgotten. 
you know, there's not many natural inhabitants of this world as the empire has taken over and corrupted everything and polluted their world. Um, there's this forgetfulness, this willing willingness to forget what that world was like, you know, from the imperial side thematically, that these, um, I don't want to say native peoples. I, to me, that doesn't sound right. But the the inhabitants of this of this place, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The you know the original peoples here that they they're refusing to let go. Um, there's this inherent mythology to them that they want to carry on, and it stems from something as simple as water. This need for um, this basic element um, that can drive life. And for the empire, it drives the life force of their industry, which is a war machine and oppression and all of these other things. Um, so this family in history and the story of breaking the cycle, uh, literally breaking the wheels, the cogs and the wheel of the empire to regain a claim on your past and your culture and bring that back um, for the galaxy to see in these stars, um, the paint that was used um, for their hands, the way that it disappears when there isn't starlight is emblematic of that. When there is no light to shine down, we there is nothing to reflect back. Um, the light that we absorb can be brought back out into the galaxy um, in, in ways that we may not... Um, be able to comprehend right away. And that's, that's the myth. That's the myth of this, this paint. That's the the magic of this paint that they use um, in this thing. And what the story says about the balances of nature and the destruction of the anti-nature, you know, you, they build up, the empire builds through destruction. And the only way to reclaim something natural is to also destroy the unnatural element. Um, there's this cycle there that has to end in order for nature to heal itself, for this world to heal itself, for, for these families, whoever's left there to heal themselves and move on from the scars that the empires put down on them um, and find their way back into a lasting living history. Um, that's, you know, my interpretation of this thing. And I think it was, it was beautiful. Um, it's not my favorite of the bunch, um, it is one of my nine favorites, but it's um, it was very well done. Uh, again, the animation of this with the stop motion, I think was 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 I don't know. It amazes me that the amount of time that it takes to do something like this, um, and it's only you know twenty ish minutes long. The amount of effort that goes into doing these kinds of things and get lighting cues right and all this kind of just it, it it's wonderful. Um, but I do love that this story of the past. Um, from Chile and knowing native populations there and how things have changed through industrialization and all of these other things and have that story framed in Star Wars in the guise of the Empire and these connected peoples and these sisters who we find out are, you know, force capable um, as they react with the natural world that's left around them. That's where this strength comes from. Um, through a very dangerous circumstance was, uh, was very well done. So excuse me while I take a drink of some water, give myself some life. That is some high quality H2O. Um, moving on. 
This one, I Am Your Mother, from the UK, from Studio Ardman, directed by Magdalena Osinska. I believe this is the one that showed at Celebration um, last month. And all of the early talk of this one was about how delightful it was and all of these other things. And it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was very vibrant and colorful. And it was unique in a, in, in a way of translating Star Wars that only a studio like Ardman can do. Um, you know, Ardman is responsible for the Wallace and Gromit stuff and uh, Chicken Run and all of these other, um, you know, claymation uh, movies and stories and things like that. So the Easter eggs in this one are everywhere. Obviously, Wedge Antilles, they get Dennis Lawson to come and voice a thing that's like not an Easter egg, but, you know, kind of a cool cameo. The posters on the young girl's wall, uh, there's a poster of Hera. That's back there. She clearly looks up to one of the best pilots in the known galaxy. Um, it fits it into this weird kind of canon-esque nature because there's real, I don't want to say real, that's not the right word, but um, there's canonical characters that exist in this story. Um, it could be canon, um, you know, using canon loosely for this thing, I, you know, I'd probably, you know, we know that they're not, but it could fit. A lot of these stories can fit in their own way, but this one, uh, could probably fit the most because of the use of existing characters. And this story it says so much to me about pride, about family, about judgments um, in the way of like, she doesn't want her mom around because, oh, mom, her mom can be embarrassing or, you know, whatever. Her mom's kind of this eccentric, you know, uh, bohemian type you know, there's um, a lot of clutter and noise and things like that, where this the, this young character wants more structure, more order, um, is excited about piloting and racing and these other things, but kind of feels that they can't. Um, and that the pride in that is holds its own kind of dangers because you through that pride, you can push people aside. You can... Um, ostracize people you cannot uh come to recognize the benefits of having certain people in your life and this is you know a struggle that you know everybody goes through growing up you you rebel against your parents most of us do at least um or you as you're struggling to find your own identity growing up or in certain settings you bristle against the people who are part of an established norm. You don't want to be like the generation before you. You don't want to be like your parents. Um, sometimes you do. Um, we come to find that at the end of this thing, her mother is every bit the inspiration that she needed her to be. And she always was. She just, she couldn't see it through kind of her own, her own pride, her own um, sense of identity, but her identity was so intrinsically tied with her mother's she just wasn't willing to accept it. She couldn't see the forest through the trees. And um, I love that this this short was so much more jovial and fun and vibrant. The race, the one ship that looked like the, the Stinger Mantis from the Jedi games, um, the way that kind of spun around, the, um, the villains of this character, they have this kind of like, it's like if uh, the seventh sister and uh, Cruella DeVille kind of got together and, and threw them in Star Wars, uh, you know, as this mashup character. Um, 
the stern kind of long lines of the the mother villain uh, who's flying a black ship or whatever uh, against like the soft roundness of our hero character's ship, which is like a, a space Winnebago, kind of like space balls. Um, it was, um, you know, it was like a Borg cube and a Winnebago kind of mashed together. <laughs> it was um, fantastic to see a lot of the little, like I guess, the little jokey stuff in the background. There was a separate porta potty for Wookiees, and there was lots of cool little droids running around in the backgrounds and aliens. And the way Ardman animates mouths kind of like adds its own kind of whimsical humor, um, especially with like the Wookiees. Seeing the one Wookiee with the little pacifier rip the arms off the thing is an old Star Wars joke. Um, it was delightful. I, I thought this one was um, was really well crafted, but the heart of this thing was so apparent. Um, as a parent, you know, passing on what you know, you know, these lessons that are very inherent in Star Wars. Um, it was um, it, it was a joy to watch, and I I would love to see more stop motion Star Wars. You heard me talk about it within the stars. Um, it's a very unique way to present Star Wars that that adds to the texture, literally um, and figuratively, the texture and the tapestry of what of what Star Wars is, because there's something more tangible about it. Um, seeing an actual object being animated, it, it's weird to say like these kind of like cartoony outlandish things almost feels more real because we're in our brains. We know that it's an actual object in this fantastical setting um, was very, very well done. Now, switching gears to the next short, uh, Journey to the Darkhead from Studio Mir out of Korea. Whew, this one was a ride. Um, guys, if you don't follow Daz Tibbles on Twitter or Instagram, please do. Daz is out of Australia and does some amazing, amazing, amazing um, like pop culture fan art. Uh, it spans tons of, of different um, properties. And... Daz had a drawing of the Sith character from this short that is nothing short of fantastic. Go check him out at Daz Tibbles on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm always sharing and, and retweeting Daz's stuff because I think it's great. The look of this episode is very anime. You know, clearly it's coming out of Korea. It's got a lot of, the, you know, this this Asian aesthetic, uh, which was cool to see with this Jedi character. Um, I think this is the first full-fledged Jedi we've seen so far in this volume. Um, you know, the the woman in the beginning is kind of like in this in-between state. She's more Jedi than Sith, even though she's more classified as Sith, at least by title and history and things like that. Um, I could be wrong, but I think this is the actual first full Jedi characters that we see on screen for volume two. Need some more water. Sorry, I've been talking a lot. Um, this was again. This this was a ride. This was an emotional roller coaster. Um, in this exploration of fate, of intervention, of disrupting balance, um, in the guise of progression. Um, the symbolism of these statues as two sides of the same coin 
when there's almost a perpetual war happening. Uh, literally, there's a war happening, and the statue is seen as um, purveyors of that war. And destroying the dark statue could be the end of this of this war. Um, is very short sighted, but it talks about the like the frailty of um, humanity's or the characters' acceptance of the world around them, thinking that a single act can change the whole galaxy, which in some instances it can. But as we've seen, at least through canonical Star Wars, it presents its own problems afterwards. And had this female character been able to destroy the head, the dark head, um, it wouldn't have ended anything. Um, That's a realization that had to come about through the story. And the the idea of fate and prophecy and um, how things can be misinterpreted or misleading how communication, much like in phase two of the High Republic, becomes almost its own character. Um, the idea that fate can be told through these magical rains that descend from these statues onto these rocks, um, but they fade away. You know, nothing is literally, they are not etched in that stone. They are there, they are there to be seen, but. Um, things can change. The end of that story wasn't told, and it was only told as the characters live these moments. Um, this Sith character was terrifying. It had almost like the xenomorph tail whip looking thing. We saw that thing do some damage. Um, the lightsaber fighting, the animation of this was was great. Seeing just the red and the blue against this black backdrop um, as you know, ships are flying through this, uh, this young woman, uh, you know, trying to get to the dark head itself as this fight is going on. Um, and then coming to the realization that what they saw was their own story unfolding on that rock many years prior and how, again, the choices that we make can affect the larger world around us and how fate and testing, um, ourselves can influence other people. Um, the the shifting tides of this never-ending battle between light and dark, and as the bombs are being placed, these grenades or whatever are being placed around the dark head, and to see the color shift on the statue heads to where they're both kind of red and blue, there is no real clear light side or dark side between them. There's this very yin and yang <clears throat> kind of um, symbology there. It was uh, was really cool to see that destroying one would have been a mistake because um, it would have presented a a much um, a, a, a literal imbalance. One has a head, one doesn't. But these heads, these statues have to coexist together the same way light and dark have to exist together, um, where you know, dark is the absence of light. But light doesn't erase the darkness. The light still creates shadows. Um, there's always this battle between the two. And as a war can end, at least in Star Wars through its mythology, the battle of light and dark presents itself as almost an eternal 
Um, and it seems fruitless to, to get involved in something like that, knowing that the battle is always going to be there. But it's always about that choice. Um, I always fall back on Qui-Gon's lines from Master and Apprentice about why we choose the light. It's there to be chosen. It's there to guide us every waking moment of our days. It's something that we can use in our real lives and how we interact with each other and the choices that we make being online or being at work or the attitude that you want to carry. Um, acknowledge that darkness every once in a while. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated about things, but there's always a turnaround. There can always be a turnaround. There's always a return to hope that I think this story um, lays out for us that it doesn't have to be about a destruction of the more negative things in our life. Um, they can be brushed aside and acknowledged. You know, it's sometimes these ideas are still a part of us. Um, adversity can bring out such hopeful things. And I think that's manifest in these characters, um, especially by the end as they kind of have a more lighthearted moment uh, after the big battle and the Sith character uh, is defeated and all of that. And knowing that this Jedi can move on into bigger and better things and this girl can um, move away from the trappings of prophecy and uh, affect real change with real people going forward. Uh, I think it was very expertly crafted. And you're going to hear me say that a lot too, guys. We are 45 minutes into this thing and I'm sure I've said it a couple of times. Um, Next, we have uh, Spy Dancer, the Spy Dancer from France, Studio La Cachette, directed by Julian Chang. And this animation style, I absolutely adored. Um, there's a movie that came out a while ago called The Triplets of Belleville, uh, which I believe is also a French uh, animated movie. And it's wacky. It's goofy. Um, it is... Uh, it's a visual marvel because it's an animation style that I don't want to say is overlooked, but it's not always first and foremost when we think about different animation styles. French animation is a gift as far as I'm concerned. Um, and this short presenting itself as this almost re-skinned World War II story of a like French cabaret in Star Wars was... Um, was very fun to watch. Um, but as uh, Parisian stories do, there is this underlying tragedy, this sense of pain that lingers. Um, and a lot of times, pain, the, the suffering that we go through as humans, the emotional kind of like trials and tribulations that we have can inspire some truly great art. And I think that's manifest in... Um, the dancer character of this short, um, there is, there is a, de there's a desire for freedom in the movements of this character. There's this, um, very ballet esque, um, uh, fluidity to how she moves even surrounded by the oppressive, um, fist of the empire. I mean, all of the people that are there as an audience are stormtroopers. Um, I love that the stormtroopers are given uh, different body types. And I don't mean that as like, you know, because there's different, I mean it like as a way of differentiating characters. Um, the, the stylized look of the stormtrooper helmets, they don't look, you know, exactly like stormtrooper helmets are a little bit um there's a little bit more artistic freedom in these things it's a little bit more 
um, impressionist, if you will, uh, as an art style. Um, it reminds me of like Toulouse-Lautrec paintings um, from back in the day with uh, the way light and shadow works. And uh, a lot of Toulouse-Lautrec's paintings are about um, observing people in these like for lack of a better word, like debaucherous settings, like in brothels and things like that, if you go back and look at the paintings. Um, but this is a cabaret. It's a place of entertainment, but it's in the middle of this, probably, you know, assuming a war zone. I mean, it's the empire. They're everywhere. Um, and this woman's realization that the imperial officer and their backstory, what was taken from them and how it's affected them and probably inspired that, you know, the movements, there could be something very motherly, um, and nurturing about how the ends of her cape or whatever kind of moves around, how it seems to hug items, people, even as she's throwing these trackers on them. Um, she's beating them at their own game uh, in a way. Um, but when the realization of the Imperial, again, full spoilers here, being her son, uh, got an audible gasp from me. It seemed, I mean, you can foretell that, well, it's probably they're connected somehow. It was still like, oh, no way. Like there's, it's, it's a, a, a different kind of spin. Um, this woman survived knowing that her child had been taken from her, thinking that they were probably gone and only to find them on the other side of this ideological war, not even just literally working for the other side, but like ideologically with them. Um, and on top of it, to find that they are alien, they're not human. We know how the empire feels about uh, alien species from time to time. There's a lot of xenophobia and the reveal that his little horns, well, I don't know, whatever species he's supposed to be are gone. Um, but the scars are still there. He has to hide them under his hat so he can fit in with the empire. Um, that idea of identity, of ignoring your identity to fit in with a power structure uh, for power, for maintaining that fist um, and how it causes his own suffering. But she gave him a way out. She gave him that little trinket or whatever that has a tracker on it um, and the holographic image of himself as a baby, I believe. It was... Uh, it was uh, it was a little, I mean, it was heartbreaking. Um, they have to leave. They have to leave that artist world, um, because you know the hammer is literally being uh, thrown down on them. But you know, hopefully, they move on to a, a better life. And again, a choice is presented for this imperial. What do you do now that you have some knowledge? You've been educated a little bit. What do you do with that? Do you maintain the status quo because that's where your power is? Or do you step away from it and go back to a true sense of individualism and belonging with a family, a family of creatives? Um, it's deep. It's deep stuff. Um, doesn't have to be. But again, if you choose to look for these things, that they are ever present. So this, yeah, it's the story is about never letting go of a hope. It's about making your enemy feeling complacent and comfortable. Um, and turning that into a weakness, um, their own complacency. And I loved it. How about smashing fascists? Fascists. So, <clears throat> and using art to do that too. Wonderful, wonderfully done. 
Um, so let's um, let's fly on over to India. Bandits of Golok uh, by 88 Pictures, directed by Ishan. Oh, let me look up the name here. Ishan Shukla. And this one, I wasn't really sure in the beginning kind of what was going on. I mean, I was, but I was looking at the animation and it had, it, it's like if India made the Clone Wars, Canaan uh, Clone Wars. It, the animation style felt like it could fit very easily in with any Clone Wars story. Um, biggest difference being the music. I mean, this is, you know, Kevin Kiner did all the music for Clone Wars, and this was more, you know, just straight, you know, uh, culturally appropriate music for uh, for these creators. And it was um, it was a little off putting at first. Like, okay, what's the story here? And as it progressed, and they get to that um, kind of temple, you know, their their final destination. That's when things really started to take shape. I love the chase. I love the the train element um, that they brought in. The the wanting for sweets and candy because they are. You know, the the brother and the sister, I think their names were like Rulok and Ronnie. I forget. Um, again, I didn't write down names. But it was, um, there's these tender moments between them too when you come to realize that their father's not around anymore because assuming the Empire probably, um, that would make the most sense or, you know, with some other tragedy, who knows. But they have each other but they have this secret in that this little girl can use the force. Um, and again, this idea of artistic expression, because she wants the flute, she wants to be able to play music and be creative um, is it's all over these shorts. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm just coming to that realization right now, but um, the, um, the want for something more colorful and sweet, away from the doldrums of whatever this world is that they're, that they're living in. Um, it's uh, it was very kind of tender and she brings this danger on herself by being somewhat careless, naive by using the force to pull the flute from her brother's bag while he's going to get her the, uh, the candy or whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> It was all well done. I loved the look of the the bandits, the raiders, um, the rebels, whatever you want to call them. Those creatures that they were riding, they kind of looked like a cross between a horse and a hyena. They were really cool. I'd love to see more of those things. Um, but the second half of this thing, when they get to that courtyard with the temple, um, the tone really shifts. The danger never goes away for this brother and sister. And we see the risks involved with her using the force and how she's inexperienced in using the force um, by levitating that plate and uh, dropping it on the one alien as he smacks that little Ognat, whatever running feud is between them. This story, before we get into this Inquisitor character, who I think looked amazing, um, what the story says about uh, legacy and remembrance and um pairing that against the force changed forced change that the inquisitor is trying to uh 
elicit through fear by um, having this brother and sister or the people there forcibly adapt to the ways that he's bringing about with these, these two purge troopers. Um, they are darkness in a vibrant setting uh, and the impending storm coming, which, you know, the symbolism is all written all over that one. That one's pretty obvious, but the reveal of the old woman uh, and which, you know, we kind of could tell is coming when she busts out two lightsabers from that cane. I was like, yo, what? And then the, the slow motion of the setup for this fight for me is some of the coolest slow motion that I've seen put into a story as of late. Um, this is not me criticizing it, but just to set a comparison, when I look at some of the DC movies uh, and the use of slow-mo in some of those things, like to me, doesn't fit. It looks cool, don't get me wrong, but to me it, it didn't fit. It wasn't a part of the story. It was a, almost a visual trick. And I, I mean, you have to do that with the flash, but some of the slow-mo stuff that's in like the Wonder Woman movies, I'm like, I don't, didn't like it. The slow-mo here, I think serves the story better than that. And I'm like, guys, I'm not ragging on DC movies. They're fine. But just setting a comparison, um, except for Wonder Woman 84. I do not like that movie. The, uh, the use of slow-mo as the setup for tension. It's all chaos in this moment. Everybody's flipping tables and there's dishes flying around. Bodies are flying. Um, purge troopers are getting knocked over, all of that stuff. It's this escalation of tension, but slowing it down as a way of forcing us to focus on what's there. And when the old woman comes out, knowing that she's the catalyst for all of these um, platters being raised up and diverting the attention away from uh, the brother and the sister from um, the Inquisitor, you it it forces you to kind of look at the environment and say, who is doing this? What is happening? All hell has broken loose because of the actions of this old woman by means of a distraction as a way of protecting, if you will. Um, and it was so cool to see the even in this singularity as a, a culture, all of the different looks of aliens that were there to help, you know, even on the train, uh, some of those that turn, you know, be it Thorians or Aqualish or whatever they are, you know, it's probably some new ones. The same thing is there in uh, that temple village or whatever, but they all disappear. And then it's just the woman in the Inquisitor. And that fight, it starts off real slow. And I'm like, they don't kind of show that initial late, that saber strike, you know, kind of lingers on it for a second. And I'm like, are we going to get another Obi-Wan Darth Maul type fight? And then we didn't, we just didn't. This battle was way cool. Um, the hum of a, I know guys bristle against like the helicopter sabers of the inquisitors, but the hum of a spinning lightsaber to me is one of the coolest sounds in star Wars. I don't know what it is about it, but I love it. Um, and the way that fight goes down and the death stroke that she puts down on him uh, is 
so masterfully done. There's always a lot of limb lopping, heads cut off, decapitations, whatever. And this was just enough of a strike on the front of the neck to stop this guy. He could still speak, which is key because it's an acknowledgement of a Jedi. The second time, his, his acknowledgement, he repeats the line. Um, and the, like the lingering moments of that as he falls and then he's dead. Um, the glow on his neck was, uh, it, I mean, it draws your eye against a character who's in all black with green skin. Um, it was almost like there was a kyber crystal placed there or something, the way that the, the purple was on it. It was, um, it was so, so, so well done. Um, and then the old woman telling the girl that, you know, you should, you can stay with us. I, we can give you safety and security, but you have to hide and your brother's not allowed to come because he doesn't have the same gift that you do. And this is where in the beginning, the, the acknowledgement of legacy through their father manifests itself again, um, because they have to separate, but it's also his acknowledgement of himself, um, by saying, I can tell this story, um, not literally that there's Jedi hiding there, but that my family is doing something important. My father probably died doing something important. My younger sister is going to live a life doing something important and helping people. And I can do the same thing too. And when she gives him back the flute on the water, um, was a way for him to do that. It's almost like this Pied Piper moment of like, rally people to this cause, you know, um, get people behind you and do that creatively. You know, don't just tell people what happened, find cool ways to do it. Um, again, that's all, that's what it said to me, guys. I, I don't know if you guys all got the same kind of messaging, but, um, that's what I got. And it was about letting go and finding your peace. Um, and again, acknowledging the legacy. I loved this. I loved this one. And I, this one, when they announced all the titles and everything a few months ago, this was the one that kind of piqued my interest the most because the Bandits of Golok sounds like the most fantastical just by title to me. Um, and this one ranks up there. Uh, this one might be right behind Screechers Reach and uh, Journey to the Darkhead for me. This, the, those might be my top three. Of my nine favorites, those might be my, my three favorites. Um, it's hard to say. It'll probably change as I watch these things more and more. But moving on, let's go to a U.S.-based studio um, in uh, Dart. It was actually Lucasfilm and Dart um, Stigio. Excuse me, I was reading off my phone. This was uh, directed by Leandre Thomas, co-directed by Justin Ridge, who works for Lucasfilm. And this story, uh, in its animation style, reminded me a lot of almost like 80s anime kind of like um, Battle of the Planets, uh, Robotech kind of thing, uh, just in the animation style. Uh, I was thrown off a little bit by that uh, the Stormtrooper Commander's voice, the one with the pauldron, because it's more gruff. Um, doesn't sound like the W. Collins or Sam Whitworth's, who usually voice Stormtroopers. I don't even know if it was or not, but um, it just sounded way different. Like I just pictured like a grizzled beard underneath that thing, um, as opposed to what we usually see for Stormtroopers. Excuse me while I drink. 
excuse me. Um, but uh, the story here, these people are all prisoners and they are to dig this pit in search of kyber crystals. And there is this like almost biblical parallel to this one that I see of this Exodus. These people are traveling in the hopes of a promised land. Uh, and it's only through their work that that promised land is created. That city is built as they are mining kyber crystal. We see it in the, um, in the time-lapse moment of this thing. And seeing the faces of the people as they're working, the determination, the will to kind of never let go. And once they hit bottom, there's no more to go. The empire just leaves them there to die. Um, they're still prisoners. Um, it was kind of sad. And like, well, how the hell are they going to get out of this? And the discussion between Crux and the little girl about following the light reminded me so much of what's, what's present in the high Republic. You know, there is its own motto of for light and life. And that is so ingrained in this story. Um, those words where he's telling her, follow the light. And he does just that. He finds his way out. He um, assures the people that are that he's leaving behind that he's going to find help. The people will help. There are good people in the galaxy, and they will come to us. There are more of us, Poe. There are more of us. Um, it's a citizen's mining operation, if you will, by the end. And the Empire tries to stand it away. Those stormtroopers try to stand it away. And, you know, homeboy gets to the to the to the city. Stands up on that ledge. I didn't do any translating either of what it said on the um, that placard that he was standing on. I wish I did. But um, there's that uh, moment of despair where, you know, people are not listening to him. You know, he's pleading with these people and nobody acknowledges him until he's yelling in their faces. Guys, people are suffering and you are living off of the backs of these people. Um, it speaks so much to the history of America. I mean, this is like, again, when we talk about the cultural influences and the, the, the nationalities as they're being presented through these stories, this one is so inherently American, um, on the backs of other people, um, people, other people's reap the benefits of it. And, um, seeing crux and how he's handled by the empire, he's just, I mean, he's lynched. They throw him over the side of the thing back down into the pit. Um, and how that affects the people that are there. I mean, we don't see his body. They, they cover it up out of respect and things like that. But to have that little girl be the, um, the catalyst for, for the change, um, that's going to help save them, you know, by saying that, you know, we are, uh, follow the light that they will come. And just by chanting, it's not, it's not that literal life. It's not, you know, a literal beacon, um, which I kind of thought it was going to be like, they might find more crystals on there cause there were more. Um, 
and they would find a way to create a beacon, create this um, spotlight, you know, coming from down there so that people would find them. But they used their voices and the echoing of the pit itself. And light is life. You know, the life that they um, are, are uh, sharing through their voices becomes the light, becomes the beacon. And the citizens come to help them. And I wanted that much like the bandits of Golok, all of the people that are in the pit looked human to me. I don't recall seeing any alien species down there. And who comes to help them is all of these different alien peoples. Um, it's that stronger together. It's that uh, strength and diversity um, that we can persevere against an oppressive um, faction that we can find ways through our differences and celebrate our similarities in ways that break the shackles of cycles, systemic cycles, if you will. Um, it's a, uh, it's a pretty powerful message. And just to have one character who's down there, again, creating art. It's so much in these shorts. The one guy's just down there spray painting. And um, this short having that, you know, kind of post credit scene where we actually see the artwork um, and what it says. And it says the pit in Orbesh. Um, that one I could just read. I loved it. I loved what it presents. You know, it's kind of like a, um, a we were here moment. You know, it, it, will probably wash away over time or erode over time. But for its time, it's a statement that we were here and we existed and we mattered and we got out. We 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 climbed our way out. We broke um, the barriers to get us out of here. Uh, I also love that it was like those little aardvark looking sand creatures that helped him get out. Again, it's life. They're in a desert. There's still life there. Um, it's almost like they felt his despair and they, they just helped him get out. It's, it's, it's wonderfully done. So kudos to um, the studios um, for that one. It, it was great. And uh, finally, Ao Song uh, from South Africa. This one threw me for a loop, guys. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I, mean, I remember seeing the images of the character of Ao and um, it had this very cutesy look to it um, that I didn't know what this story was going to be, what it was going to entail. But I loved it. Um, this is from Studio Triggerfish. Again, like I said, out of South America. Uh, South Africa. I'm sorry, guys. South Africa. Um, directed by Nadia Darius and Daniel Clark. Um, I love that there was a bit of a crawl for this one. Um, just the text on the screen giving the history of, uh, was it Korba, the planet that they're on, the world that they're on, and how the dark side has corrupted just about all of the kyber that exists there. Um, as it was once a almost Ilum type place, uh, rich with kyber for Jedi or for force users, if you will. Um, and to see how the darkness changed all of that and how the kyber on their own are weaponized. Um, they don't need to be in a lightsaber hilt to be dangerous. 
you know, to hear her father say to the Jedi character um, that it's extremely unstable. And Ao's voice um, triggering the, the crystal into its own kind of action, uh, be it defending itself or just lashing out because it's full of darkness or whatever it was. And it burns her father's hand. Um, he's stifling her creativity. Again, one last time, another story with creativity in it. Um, he stifles that because he sees a danger that it presents, the risk that it presents um, as this darkness, this corruption is um, literally uh, in the ground that they walk on. Uh, it, it is the foundation of their lifestyle at this point. It always has been uh, them mining Kyber, but something happened that the Sith were able to change most, if not all, of the Kyber on this planet. Um, I love this. There's a line about duty and courage that the Jedi says to Al, um, because that's what this is about. It's about responsibility and facing your fears, um, taking into that cave only what you have with you and how um, you can come out through a quote-unquote dark side cave with a, a deeper understanding of things. Um, how, I mean, Awa doesn't speak in this thing until almost five minutes in. You know, she kind of hums along in the beginning. Um, but yeah, it's like four minutes and 40 some odd sec uh, seconds when she has her first spoken words. Um, again, there's th the risk of expression for her. She's, she's quiet. She's been stifled. Her father's telling her like, you kind of can't do this stuff as a way of protecting her. Um, he's not cruel about it, but he just sees the danger that can come from it. Um, this short says so much about corruption and enlightenment of um, a destroyed history and a hopeful future. Um, changes that happen over a long period of time uh, and how something can feel like a status quo and how to break the cycle and get out of that. Not to mention, guys, just the literal diamond mining aspect of what the story is. I mean, you look at the history of, of some African nations and diamond mining and things like that and how they're used. Um, it exists. Um, again, you know, the riches off the, the backs of the actual workers, but um, the Ao's connection to the Kyber through her voice, hearing the song of the force. Again, another one of those um, high Republic connections with, um, Avar Chris and the Song of the Force. I love it. I love the color and vibrancy that exists in this world, even though there is this deep-seated corruption and darkness that lives beneath them. Um, it's um, it just it it strikes at the core of what Star Wars is. Um, that changes can be made almost on the molecular level to make things better or brighter or more hopeful. It just takes a single bit of inspiration, of light, of hope, of creativity, of humanity, of protection, 
of all of these different things that can be the catalyst for um, a brighter turn. And Ao Song is just that. Uh, when she goes into the mine surrounded by nothing but corrupted kyber crystals, her father comes to pull her out. Um, it's in that darkness that she finds protection in the arms of her father, even though the danger is not gone. And when the spire collapses, when the that rock slide and all of that is happening and the Jedi's there to try to help, she's not able to do it alone. Al helps by singing life back into those rocks um, and turning the corruption back on its heel to um, manifest her own protection, to use the crystals in a way that can protect them all um, and enrich this future history for them. Um, because now, even though the Jedi can seemingly reverse the process, it is an extremely difficult thing to do. And Owl has this gift. It is a natural thing um, that can affect millions or billions of people. It is the way art transcends these stories and influences us. And it's kind of a statement on all of what Visions is. It's these stories about cultures, about individuals, about choices about legacy about all of the things that i talked about in each of these shorts is so manifest in this one character of owl and i'm glad it ended with this one because it is of the stars these kyber crystals look like stars in the ground we are surrounded by this galaxy um it's around us it's yoda's quote it surrounds us it binds us you know the force is everywhere positivity is everywhere um, the forces of darkness, of evil, of doubt and fear are also everywhere. But it takes duty and courage to move beyond those things and make choices that can affect our futures or our perspectives on the past um, also. And sometimes it just takes nurturing of a talent to get us there and the talents of all of the creators involved with these nine shorts for me was nothing short of spectacular i'm not going to compare this against volume one these are two wholly different things um, volume one had uh, many positives and i don't think it's fair in my opinion to say that this one is better or worse. It can affect you differently, more positively or more negatively than volume one did. Um, but I think setting that kind of mentality aside and engaging with what these stories are on the individual basis, um, whether you found the same things that I did in, in them, or if you had a different takeaway or, if you, if maybe I brought a perspective that maybe you didn't see, I, I don't know. Um, I say that with humility, not that I'm some kind of guru when it comes to these things. I just, I, I want to look um, beneath the surface of these things and I'm glad they exist. I, I want more of, of this kind of um, storytelling from Star Wars. I want these creators to be able to do things that are so fantastical, so whimsy outside of the bonds of what canon um 
some feels like it has to be sometimes um, being kind of uh, locked in by points of a story. These things can exist wherever they need to exist. And I'm glad they existed on my TV for a while and in my notebook and now on this podcast. And guys, I, I hope to God after <laughs> almost an hour and a half of talking, you haven't gotten sick of my voice. Um, doing this solo was definitely a choice. And if you stuck around to the end, I appreciate each and every one of you for doing so. Thank you for listening to my opinions and my ramblings on this thing. And I hope, I really, really hope you got something from this. Um, that maybe if you didn't have a high opinion of some of these shorts, that something that I say might bring you to something um, more uh, enriching or fulfilling. Um, I, again, and I say that with all humility. So we're going to wrap this up, guys. Uh, there is a lot of stuff coming for Star Wars uh, and for us personally. First of all, let me say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers uh, out there if you're listening enjoy your weekend, enjoy your day, enjoy whatever little things that your families do for you. Um, and, um, remember the mothers who are no longer with us. Um, they are forever in the stars and in our hearts. Um, and, um, you know, I, we have MC three coming up in, in Detroit, uh, which is a big convention here next weekend that I'm, that we're going to be going to, I'll let you know if any star Wars stuff happens. It might be a little bit of time before the next episode drops because it's going to be a busy weekend for us. Um, and, uh, you know, new books are coming. I think, uh, the, uh, red blade book is the next one by Delilah Dawson with the inquisitor whose name I'm forgetting. Um, there's always stuff to talk about guys. I, I am reading those Lando books. I'm thinking about maybe doing a review for one or both of those. They are wacky. If you've never read them, um, I was talking to Jerry Cable about a couple weeks ago. They are just some of the weirdest things I've ever read in star Wars. Um, but, you know, coming up, then we've got Ahsoka, we've got comics, we've got the end of phase two of the High Republic uh, in the comics and things like that. Um, it's a lot. There's always a lot. And doing this is a choice. And it is also a choice on your part. And I appreciate all of you for, for listening. Um, big shout out again to Pete uh, last week for uh, jumping on for May the 4th. It was a great time. And uh, as he said to me, looking forward to the next May 4th when we can do it again. It'll be an annual thing for as long as the show is going on, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, he hasn't given me a choice. It was in my contract when he handed me the, uh, the keys for jammed transmissions. So, um, guys, you know where you can find me on the socials. I was so excited last episode that I forgot to do all of this. Uh, you can follow me at Cad Bane's bounty, uh, just about everywhere. Um, except the places that I'm not, you can follow the show on Twitter and hive at JT Comlink and on Instagram at jammed transmissions. Guys, if you have any thoughts, on visions volume two. Um, and you want to send me an email or a voicemail, you can do that. Send it to comlink, C O M L I N K at jammed transmissions.com. And, uh, we will talk about it on the show. We'll talk about opinions and perspectives and all of that stuff. I want to hear what you guys have to say. Um, wherever you're listening to the show, guys, be it on an apple, something or other, uh, please remember to rate and review it. I would love to hear some more reviews and what you guys think about the show as it is growing and expanding. If you're on Spotify, uh, throw me a couple of stars over there and give me a follow on Spotify. I would love to see some of those numbers go up. Um, I can't do that by myself. Um, I can I can yell it out into the ether, but uh, all it does is take one little click on your part. So remember to rate and review, share the episodes on Twitter, on Instagram, wherever um, you catch me on the socials. Um, Keep an eye out for any future Broaxium quick shots from myself and my son. He's got one this coming week. 
Um, the Nameless Terror number four from the High Republic. It is the last issue of that. Uh, free comic book day was last week, guys. If you didn't get the High Republic Adventures book with Lula Talasola, do so. If you haven't read it, I'm sure, I believe it's out digitally now. You can find it on Comixology and all that. I'm not promoting Comixology because reasons, but you can find it online. Um, please read it. It is a banger of a story. I loved it. Um, made me gasp a couple of times out loud. So that's where you can find me and the show. All bro axiom stuff that myself and my son are doing. I hope I'm not forgetting anything. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into episode 138 of Jam Transmissions. And I will see you on the other side of MC3. Until then, may the force be with you.